Welcome to the latest episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. In this episode, we're returning to the subject of sources of finance for business. And my guest today is Guy Ellis, who's a partner at Rockpool Investments. Rockpool invests in the UK lower mid-market with a unique source of funding. So I'm looking forward to hearing more from Guy. And with that, I welcome you, Guy Ellis, to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Okay. Um, so always useful to know what your background is before we kind of get into talking about Rockpool. So would you like to give us a little bit of history on you know what you've done before and how you got to this role? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, happy to. So I graduated from Nottingham, did industrial economics at Nottingham, graduated in 2008, went straight into an investment bank. So I joined BNP Paribas on the trade floor, so on the trading side. And then obviously in 2008, the entire world financial wealth collapsed. Um, so didn't actually spend that long on a trading floor in the end and decided that uh, having witnessed that kind of firsthand, I thought, oh, maybe I'll try something a bit more people-focused rather than purely numbers-focused. So I found my way into management consulting. So I spent a number of years with Deloitte as a management consultant, mainly working with retail banks and investment banks at the time. and. As I progressed through the ranks as a senior consultant, I then got the opportunity to go to Goldman Sachs on secondment, which was a great opportunity to go across into their private equity team as an analyst. It was really just as a sort of a sacrificial lamb from Deloitte to Goldman Sachs to help build the relationship. But I was I was a willing sacrificial lamb, if that makes sense. And so went over there, did a a year secondment into the Goldman Sachs team. And then at that point, that was kind of me kicking off my my private equity career. And so that was in 2013, so uh, 10 years ago now. And very much enjoyed the training and the private equity way of life, I suppose, in terms of looking at investments. I always equate Goldman Sachs years are almost like dog years in terms of what you learn there. <laughs> like one year at Goldman Sachs feels like three or four years in probably almost any other organization. So learn a huge amount with that team and then moved on to actually go down into lower mid-market. So obviously Goldman Sachs were investing in very large kind of pre-IPO buyouts, which I found very interesting in the in the first part of my career. But then given my management consulting background, I was keen to work with management teams more closely, uh, work more closely on value creation and the kind of portfolio side really interested me. So I decided to kind of dropped down in fund size down into the lower market. So I joined Alcoin Capital, who at the time were a hundred million fund. And I had a very strong track record of picking great small businesses in the UK and, and growing them. You know, they had Cafe Nero, which was one, one of their most famous investments where Mark Story invested in that when it was four coffee shops. It's obviously quite a bit more now. And Krispy Kreme UK more recently was another of their kind of slam dunks. So coffee and donuts were <laughs> were plentiful in the office. And it was a great place to learn more about labor market deal doing, which obviously differed quite significantly to what it means to do a, you know, 500 million buyout at Goldman's. You know, we're looking at businesses making one to three million EBITDA and then obviously sitting on the board and working in much smaller teams. So you got much more involved with the companies and involved with the management teams, which I really liked. And then about five years ago, I joined Rockpool Investments. So now partner there and sit on the investment committee 
and that's been a fantastic experience for me. You know, when I joined Rockpool, it was right at the point in time where Rockpool was originally investing EIS and kind of VCT style investments, which had uh, obviously interesting tax treatments for for private investors. And I joined Rockpool just as that tax regime changed, essentially. So Rockpool has a deal by deal model where they get their capital from three to 4,000 high net worth investors. And the idea was for me to join from, from a more traditional private equity background and come to Rockpool and start doing straightforward UK level market transactions, which aren't necessarily tax driven, but can create great returns for the investors. And that's been a great strategy over the last five years. I'm sure we can we can dive into that. Yeah, no, I think it'd be really interesting to, to find out a bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, so you, that, uh, an interesting move from management consulting to private equity, which as you know, I, I was in uh, management consulting myself. So ha- have you found that difference or you find yourself still kind of being a bit of a management consultant in your current role? And, and is that different from what some of your colleagues do? It's a great question because I find even though I've been in private equity for over 10 years now, I still view myself as a management consultant in private equity. I think that that kind of core training that management consulting gives you kind of stays with you throughout your career. It's such a great skill set to harness, particularly in somewhere like Deloitte. So for me, I think the typical path into private equity is either from investment banking or from big four accountancy, you know, corporate finance and qualified accountants going across into the firm. So, uh, and Rockpool's no different, you know, the vast majority of our team are qualified accountants. My accountant accounting knowledge is M&A driven, let's put it that way. I wouldn't be very good at going and doing an audit, but in front of an LBO model, I feel very comfortable. So I think it does give you a different perspective to other team members and other people in the industry. And often I think, you know, having been a management consultant and looking at value creation in such detail for companies, it's really, once you get past the transaction, I think, I think private equity as an industry is very focused on the deal and the transaction and the structuring, which is obviously crucially important to get right. But it's actually a three month, three, six month time period that you execute on that skill set. Then the skill set shifts quite significantly to now we're invested and we own a significant proportion of this company. How are we going to take this from 1 million EBITDA to 5 million EBITDA? And actually the value creation there is really the vast majority of the time is, is where the money's made. So I think having a management consulting background, you're kind of a bit more set up for that, sitting on a board and going through strategic value creation plans. And then for me, I kind of backfilled on the structuring and the modeling and the accountancy, whereas I think a lot of people come from the structuring accountancy world and then work hard on on making sure they get the, the value creation right. Yeah, yeah, and have to learn to be a management consultant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, so was there a particular reason you wanted to to move into sort of a, a lower fund size or was that just, you know, another opportunity, something different? I definitely wanted to work with UK companies. Yeah, I think the Goldman Sachs team was very European and very international in the deal flow. And I think if you only speak one language, that's you are doing UK deals. You know, if you're if you can speak French and English, you can do deals in multiple geographies. Whereas for me, I, unfortunately, I'm any uh, native English speaker. So I think I was always keen to move into a pure UK fund. And then I think in terms of moving down to that kind of one million, two million EBITDA level. I think for me, I found it the most interesting area to work in. I think it's where 
the management teams haven't gone through that kind of professionalization of the business. So I think we often find management teams who definitely have the capability to go through that, but they haven't sat down and looked at their board packs and their board reporting and had a really clear strategic goal at board level to try and shoot for. So I found that you, you could get a lot more involved at that one to three million EBITDA stage. Whereas if a business is doing 10 million EBITDA, you've got, you know, a strong market position, you've got a strong management team. It's, you know, it's most likely that that kind of professionalization has already happened. And then you're looking more at international growth and how do you go in the States or how do you go in Europe, which is not not the skill set that, that I had at the time. So so was your, when you were at Deloitte, were you dealing in that sort of uh, smaller size companies or was it that you learned about what a big company should look like and so you were able to help them on that journey? Yeah, it was, a, it was a great. That's a, another great question. It was a mixture. I mean, I think the work that we were doing at Deloitte, even if it was for a large company, it was for a small division, if that makes sense. So a divisional lead or a managing director of a particular division, you know, they run their own P&L as if they are a business, you know, a small business, it, almost like Deloitte and consulting firms do. You know, you're in this huge company, but actually, you have a group of partners who have their PL and their team, and they run it like a like a business. So, yeah, it, it was a real mix. And I think what I learned a lot from the management consulting experience is how do you get very complex ideas and strategies firstly into a PowerPoint slide, which uh, takes one skill set that you learn quite quickly. And then the other is actually communicating that to a team and constantly going through workshops to be like, has everyone inputted? Is there buy-in? And do we all understand what the goal is and what good looks like? And that's sort of what we do at almost every board meeting. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. I imagine it's um, it's kind of constant, well, I say not so much education. I guess a lot of people working in smaller businesses may have worked in larger ones before, but it's a question of, you know, priorities and what's going to get you the biggest value creation opportunity, isn't it? Exactly. Mm. So so let's um, turn to, to Rock Paul now. And I think perhaps, I know you're not quite a traditional private equity firm. Uh, it'd be interesting to hear the difference, but it might be a good place to start just to, to describe what a private equity firm is for those who don't know and and you know what the the general kind of setup there is and then you know how Rockpool is a little different from that yeah absolutely so i suppose a typical private equity fund is typically a 10-year life cycle where you're raising capital from institutions sometimes high net worth but often pension funds banks uh, these types of of capital providers you, know, you might raise 100 million pounds over a 10-year life cycle and, and the idea is you deploy for five years and then you exit for five years and yeah, return the capital, hopefully, a lot more than you originally started with. To do that, obviously, you need to have a very clear mandate to the LPs, so the, the people putting the capital in, about what you're investing in, in what sectors, what are the deal dynamics, what are the parameters. And typically, you have an investment mandate, which you obviously need to stick to. And that's largely because LPs are looking at huge sums of money and and pots of capital that they're looking to deploy. And, you know, if they want to deploy more into B2B software, they need to find funds which have a mandate for B2B software and then go into them. So as the fund, it's very important that you then execute on your mandate because then obviously LPs have a more macro view of what they're looking to invest in. Just for listeners there, an LP is a limited partner, which is the investor. And a, a GP, we actually haven't mentioned GP, but that's the, the general partner, which is the actual fund 
investment management. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah, correct. Correct. So obviously I've, I've only ever sat on the GP side as an investor and a fund like Alquin, who I joined um, originally in my Lerman market career, you know, they're a classic GP who are raising mm-hmm. money from a collection of LPs globally. Rockpool differs quite substantially from that. And it was, it was one of the reasons I joined. And um, so they raised capital from groups of high net worth investors. So these are often people who've sold a business, you know, a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs, or they're very high up, have been very high up in kind of FTSE 250 companies. And what I liked about Rockpool is that they were really looking to democratize investing into private equity deals. So at the moment, as an individual, if you wanted to gain access to private equity returns, you know, there'll be minimum check sizes you know, you can't walk up to CVC and say, I'd like to put 10 grand into your fund. <laughs> They'll say, well, our minimum is 10 million. So once you've got 10 million, then come back to us, and then we can put that into the next fund. So, and, and it's a concept that's growing at the moment, this kind of democratization of investing in private equity funds. And there's a number of platforms out there that, that are starting to kind of aggregate high net worth investors and get them into, into those kind of LP situations. But what I loved about Rockball is it's deal by deal. And investors can decide which companies that they want to invest in, and they can even choose where in the capital structure they sit. So you can sit in senior debt, mezzanine, or equity in in the transaction. So it was a very flexible investing structure that that people can come in, and our average check size is probably fifty k from investors, but I think it goes as low as fifteen k. And obviously, we've got larger larger families who are looking to to deploy more capital, but that group of high net worth investors is a big differentiator for us in the market. Sure. Yeah. No, as you say, it's, um, you're limited usually as an investor, either to a traditional fund or making individual stock picks and, and, but, but not that, you know, you don't get access to private, uh, firms when you're doing that. So, um, yeah, no, very interesting. And, and so when Rockpool's considering investments or when you're looking, uh, do, how, how actively do you, Go looking for those. How much is this? You know, companies coming to you because they need capital, and, and what is it you're looking for? Yeah, so origination is a very big part of any private equity firm. You know, making sure that you're seeing as many deals as possible. Obviously, the more you have to choose from, you know, the the better shot you've got at picking the right ones. So we take origination very seriously, and we are split as a team via different geographies. So some people will focus on Manchester, some will focus on Bristol, I focus on London, which is quite helpful. And I think for us, you know, we'll typically see probably over 500 companies across any one year. And then we'll typically invest in between three and five of them. Uh, okay. So you must have a fair team working on that just to get through that lot and see yeah. you know, which ones you think might be winners. Yeah, exactly. We've got, you know, lots of analysts and execs and and managers who are constantly going out to typically corporate finance houses and boutique corporate finance houses to understand you know what deal flow is coming up are there interesting businesses that we think would be good investments for our investor base obviously we have a criteria that we go through to make sure that we're kind of you know that funnel needs to narrow itself down quite quickly obviously if you went and met 500 companies and only did five deals you'd be drinking a lot of coffee and <laughs> in a lot of meetings so we need to narrow that funnel quite quickly to make sure that we're focusing on the opportunities that we think are best for our investors yeah and and are there particular criteria that 
that you know you look for or I don't know, anything like um, particular industries or is it just across all sorts of different things what what sort of raises you know amongst those 500 what is it that makes the ones stand out that you think yes this could be a winner yes yeah, it's, it's a great question i mean obviously we focus on different sectors and themes uh, and then once once they kind of tick the boxes on the sectors and themes then you start going into what the characteristics and the criteria that we're really looking at so from a sector perspective we like professional services we like built environments so kind of classic b2b type businesses uh, we've done financial services deals so we've done two or three financial services deals technology and software is always a hot market for investors because of the scalability and the growth that you can get from those companies uh, we look at some industrial businesses uh, so they need to be they need to fit certain criteria but we will look at kind of manufacturing and other other industrial companies and then b2c I would say private equity as a whole is softer on B2C at the moment. I mean, there are some B2C specialists who do very well. But for us, if we're going to look at a B2C business, it's got to be particularly resilient and it's got to have characteristics in the P&L that make it particularly attractive to private equity. So subscription revenue B2C is something that we can take a bit of a closer look at rather than just pure straight direct-to-consumer kind of one-off purchases. Yeah, I think it's um, quite a lot of software companies are you know, B2C model as well, aren't they? So I guess that's uh, maybe there's, uh, there's a bit of a crossing of, of the uh, two, two criteria. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. Numeritas created this podcast as part of our mission to improve the way finance makes decisions. And I hope you find the conversations as useful and interesting as I do. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or just talk privately about a forecasting or modelling challenge. Drop me a message through the contact form on our website at numeritas.co.uk and I'll get back to you. Now, back to the show. And for the companies, when they're looking for investment, what drives that? Is it that they're looking to exit or maybe some of the founders looking to exit, looking for growth, capital, or is it, again, just a mix? It's, it's definitely a mix. I mean, I think there's always some form of exit event for someone in the shareholder base so whether that's a founder wanting to retire and saying actually i want to i want to pass this business on to the next you know the second tier management team who are going to step up so management buyouts and management buy-ins and bimbos and all those kind of different acronyms uh, we'll always look at those and that they are a very steady stream of deal flow for us where a ceo is looking to acquire the company from its existing shareholder base who are no longer operational and day-to-day in the business. I'd say that's, you know, firmly down the middle of the fairway for most private equity firms is doing management buyouts. We get involved in some other different situations. So development capital is the other big one. So if there's not someone exiting, then it's, okay, this business requires X million pounds to go to the States or build a new technology or build a new product or expand what they're currently doing. So I'd say often our deals are packaged as a mixture of those those different funding requirements. It can be some money for growth. Obviously, buy and build is a huge aspect of private equity where we're acquiring other competitors in the market and, and merging the businesses. So we put a lot of additional funding into companies for for acquisition purposes. And then there's always often an element of cash out where you have either silent shareholders or shareholders who are no longer operational in the business who are looking for liquidity 
from what they built. So it, it's generally a blend of a lot of those different things. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned buy and build there. Is that um, something that's driven by the companies themselves that you're investing? Or it's not that you're looking for portfolio of companies in a, a sector to try to get synergies or is it some of both of those? It's a, it's a really interesting point. Sometimes we have management teams who've done acquisitions before who've said, look, we're looking to do a buy and build. We need, say, £10 million of capital. We think it's these targets. Can you give us the funding to go and do that? And that's something that that we love to see. I'd say for most of our teams, buy and build is something that they want to do but haven't done yet. And I think it's where private equity in general can add quite a lot of value in that value creation process, which is, well, we are deal doers by nature and, and our skill set is very, you know, transaction focused. We can help you go through all of those transactions so that you can acquire, you know, five other companies and, and merge them all together and, and get the the synergies and the value creation out of that. So it's a bit of a mix. And I think most private equity funds now, when they're looking at investments, you know, I'm gonna and I'm gonna generalize here, but back in the day when interest rates were low. A business growing 10% year on year, putting some leverage, you know, putting some debt in, holding it for five years and then selling it, you could make a really nice return. Whereas with debt becoming more expensive, holding a business for five years and it growing 10% year on year is not going to provide the same return that it used to. So I think private equity are definitely having to work harder for the returns. And one of the ways that we can kind of move the dial the most is, is via acquisitions. Yeah, and I think it's fairly well known that acquisitions are not always value adding. That sometimes they they don't go so well. You can so. get them wrong. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. So um, having your sort of support as an investee company, some something that you've invested in, having your expertise and knowledge uh, that lies within Rockpool to 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 help them do that, and, and again, sort of pick winners and and do that in a or maybe not overvalue companies as they're acquiring them, these sorts of things. Exactly, is yeah. is a real plus for them as well. Then, yeah, we we like to try and bring as much of that to the board as possible and, and to the team. And really, what we're looking to do is that the M and A training and skill set that we have, you know, as we get to a Rockpool exit and looking at what the next stage of the company looks like. We want the team to have that M&A muscle built into them. So rather than just saying, oh, well, Rockpool came in and did the buy and build for us and we went from 1 million EBITDA to 5 million EBITDA, actually, we want to help with the first few bolt-ons. And then really the ideal situation is the management team go, okay, I understand how to do this now. And yes, continue to support, but I'll take it from here and I'll start doing the M&A. They're, they're the great management teams that really go far because then when they're looking at bigger private equity houses and the next level of transaction, they can stand in front of them and say, well, I, I acquired this business and and you can fluently speak about M&A. That's where we get teams that really shift the dark. Yeah, that's right. And you, you can show that they've got a greater growth potential for the, I remember a, a previous guest talking about this, that you always want to leave something on the table, some some opportunity for growth for, for the buyer when you're exiting. Um, so yeah, if, if they've learn those skills in, in M&A and that's the roots of further growth for them then yes yeah, so that, that's uh, attractive to to somebody who's buying buying out your investment absolutely <laughs> they've got they've got a management team that's ready to go and do a buy and build strategy and has 
kind of got done, gone through the war stories of buying multiple businesses and knowing what's worked and what hasn't worked. That's really valuable for a larger investor. And I completely agree with the philosophy of leaving growth for the next buyer. You know, ultimately for us, the, the Rockpool portfolio will often assets will go to mid-market private equity firms who will continue those journeys. And you need to have that growth story for the next firm. And we're very you know, very careful not to oversell our portfolio companies or kind of squeeze all the pips to make sure we've got absolutely everything out of it. Because fundamentally, we want mid-market private equity firms to say, oh, wow, there's a new Rockpool asset coming up for sale. That's going to be a good investment for us. So we want to get into it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, good to have that reputation and yeah, absolutely makes your exits, uh, what well, probably gives you more choices then with exits as well. And so bearing in mind the size of the companies that you're investing in, do most of them have an experienced CFO? Uh, this this is a podcast targeting at, at the CFO and finance community. So I'm sure they'll be interested to know, you know, do they often have one already or is that something that you'll probably try to encourage as part of your involvement and you know, what what role do they play in this whole growth? I'm, you know, I can imagine they're key to the whole thing, but um, what's the sort of role of the CFO in these things? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting topic to discuss because we've experienced every different flavour of this, you know, from very fast growing firms who've got very little in terms of a finance function, but are growing so strongly and doing so well that they haven't kind of needed to, all the way to firms which are fully professionalized and have a great CFO on board. I think for us, the finance function, you know, given our, our, our collective backgrounds in private equity, the finance function is one of the most obvious places to start in terms of professionalizing the company and making sure it's fit for purpose from a reporting, KPIs and value creation perspective. Uh, I think a lot of CFOs learn a lot as they go through that first transaction. And we at Rockpool are often one of the first M&A experiences for some CFOs. And it's fantastic when we can keep those CFOs on the journey and get go through a Rockpool transaction, then do some bolt-ons. And then, as we said, they build their M&A expertise and then can continue to do larger transactions and, and go on to be very successful with, with even larger PE houses. But the CFO is one of the most important roles in a private equity investment. And it's something that we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that we get that right, whether that's bringing our CFOs together to have conferences where they can share knowledge and ideas and network. Obviously, we spend personally a lot of time with CFOs, particularly in the first 100 days, talking about what the board pack needs to look like and the KPIs and brainstorming with them on on how best to present the numbers so that we can clearly see what's happening in the business from a reporting perspective. And then obviously from, from an M&A perspective, to go through a buy and build without a strong CFO is, is um, a very unwise strategy to go through. Sure. Yeah. So I uh, I did a little research and I haven't seen that I've got this, but uh, I see you've uh, been uh, listed as one of the top people by real deals, actually, in future 40 mid-market investment leaders. The thing that they emphasize in here is your input into the exits. Now, this is where, as a personal investor, uh, this is where I always get it wrong, is when's the right time to sell an investment? <laughs> and, and of course, for you, it's key is, you know, so I'm really interested to hear about, and maybe you could give us an example or two of, of where that's worked well and you know, recently and what, what it is that determines when you think it's the right time to sell. And I suppose also, 
You've got a management team there. I don't know actually if they usually have some shareholding still, or if, you know that's if you bought them out. But yeah, you know, to what extent is that the company involved in the decision, and how much is that Rock Paul's decision? You know, there's a lot there. There's a whole lot of questions, but yeah, no, and 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 just to clarify, I didn't bring the real deals article into Stephen. This wasn't no, a, no, this no, wasn't I, a David I, Brent this, moment of this is in my uh, <laughs> my research. Uh, Pre, pre-interview. <laughs> very good, very good. So, I mean, for me personally as an investor, focusing on the exit even before you've done the original transaction and the original deal is is the right place to start. You need to have a goal and you need to know what you're shooting for and, and to openly discuss that with the management team before doing a transaction. Otherwise, you know, it's like getting into a marriage and not discussing if you want kids or where you should live. You know, you, you need to have a very clear target that the team want to achieve. Is it that they want to sell to a big trade buyer? Is it that they want to continue their journey with, with market private equity? You know, where are the management team in their stages of their career? Have they got another five years in them or 10 years in them or longer? You know, so we always tailor the exit to what the management team want want to do ultimately because we always work in partnership with our management teams we only ever go out to run an exit process when we collectively are agreed that it's the right time to do so i'd say there's kind of two parts to unpicking that there's from a macro perspective is this the right time to go to the market and from a business perspective are we ready to go through a process the macro side is obviously impossible to control and you kind of you are where you are with it and you know we had a few assets where we'd done all the preparation and then gone out in Q4 last year and then we had the whole Liz Trust you know kind of economic political meltdown you couldn't really have seen that coming and you can't control it covid is another great example you could have just been going out to market or be in market when the whole covid fiasco happened so there's some things that are just out of your control. But for us, what we really focus on is what does this business need to look like and what are the criteria we will be tested on on the other side of this? So if we're investing in a 1 million EBITDA business, if this was doing 5 million EBITDA, what boxes does this need to tick for the next investment committee to say right this is really what we want to go for so we're kind of doing quite a lot of that almost kind of corporate finance work you know what does the im look like in three years time compared to now and how can we shift that yeah and then looking at it from the view of a potential investor that that, like you say would be buying your investment yeah okay yeah and uh, what you said there actually was also kind of interesting with the Liz Trust government, the pandemic and, you know, um, cost of living increase and also all that's been going on. It looks like the last three years or so have probably not been a great time for many businesses to exit. So, uh, and, and actually quite a few might have struggled, obviously different trading environments. Some have benefited hugely, I guess, but uh, maybe a lot of companies have have struggled a bit. So is it that there's a kind of a backlog of of companies that are looking to exit now that um, so we could see a few deals coming as soon as the as soon as things sort of get, I guess, stability is possibly as much as anything what you're looking for, is it? Yes. Well, not you particularly, but I mean, in the market. The wider market. Yeah, I, I think the interesting dynamic to add to that from a private equity perspective is that funds need to deploy. So if you've just raised 500 million pounds and you haven't done a deal yet, but you're going through 
the Liz Trust stuff and interest rates going up, etc., you can sit on your hands for a bit as a PE fund, but you can't spend two years or three years without deploying any capital because then the next time you raise, LPs will look at this and say, well, this wasn't deployed quickly enough, et cetera, et cetera. So there's always pressure from what's called dry powder in the private equity market as funds to be invested. And so that will always encourage some PE houses to transact. And what we often find is what's called a flight to quality, which is, well, if everyone has pressure to deploy, but the market is really unstable and and, and is a difficult envi- environment to trade in, those businesses that trade well, suddenly everyone wants to buy those assets because they're safe and secure and they've got contracted revenue and they've got repeat custom and all the quality of revenue drivers that PE absolutely love even more P and, and P funds try and get into those assets. So, you know, it, it becomes quite polarizing for people looking to sell their companies. Either it's a fantastic environment because you've got one of those great assets that everybody wants, or, you know, you're having discussions about, well, we can't go out for another year or 18 months and we need to kind of sit on our hands for a bit and do as much value creation internally as we can and, and wait for the market to, to stabilize. Interesting. Yes. I mean, as a business owner, that kind of thing is, is always in the back of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> you talked a bit about the investors in Rockpool and you maybe said, well, there is to say, but I just wondered, is there, is there a sort of a typical investor there or, yeah, this, this, well, some of our listeners may well be interested actually as, as uh, potential investors. So is there anything to add to what you said before? I think from an investor standpoint, uh, one of the things I haven't mentioned is we love seeing new deal flow from our investors. So if you, investors will call us and say, oh, one of my friends owns a fantastic company. They're wondering what to do with it. Would you like to have a look at it? That's a great relationship to have with our investors because they feed us new deal flow, which is really interesting and often off market. And then equally, we love going to our investor base and saying, right, we're going to invest in X industry. Has anyone got any experience in this? Because we'd love to have a conversation and help it's a real value add if we can go to a management team and say i've i've set you up a connection with x person who used to run y business in the industry you know it it shows the power of that network and then power of that investor base so we definitely view it as a you know kind of symbiotic relationship between the two and we get a lot of value on both sides of that fence i think anyone looking to invest in private equity deals I think, you know, from a returns perspective, private equity as an asset class can often outperform S&P and FTSE 100, et cetera. And that, that's not investment advice and everyone should go and look at their own stats. But I should put some caveats yeah, on exactly. this whole thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's not encouraging everyone to pile into private equity. But I think for a lot of investors, they struggle to find how to get access to private equity deals and how to get exposure, for, you know, even if it's 5% or 10% of your portfolio or, you know, we have a SIP, for example, so people can put their pension money into private equity deals. People struggle to find how to do that. And I know a lot of people use different crowdfunding sites and things to try and get access to kind of private style returns. But I would say doing more traditional, you know, doing a 2 million EBITDA MBO of a really solid business, you need that's a great thing to to have in someone's portfolio. So, yeah, obviously, definitely get in touch with Rockball, and there's a num- number of other investors in the market who are accepting accepting investors. 
Sure. Okay. And what's the best way if somebody wants to find you? I know you're on LinkedIn. That's the best way, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Career Paths, which is a platform that, that I'm involved with, which is helping people get into private equity. So if people want to have conversations with private equity investors on how to enter the industry, you can book me on there or you can pop me a message on LinkedIn. Okay, terrific. Well, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people interested in that. Thanks. So, well, um, it's been a fascinating uh, chat. Thanks very much for that. And yeah, as I say, anybody that wants to get in touch with you, we'll put some information in the show notes as well. So they'll be able to find you. But thanks for, for coming in. And, uh, and we've done this one face to face. Not many of them have been face to face. So that's uh, that's been a nice change. But it's really interesting. Thanks very much, Guy. Thanks for having me.